And I just build this curiosity of like, what it was like for those people? I mean, we know what it was like on the ship. And they describe all these details from the ship. But, you know, what was it like to to be in a situation where you have to cannibalize your passengers, your fellow passengers? And that was sort of like haunting me for a long time with the question that what would what would I do if I was in that situation? You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng and welcome back. So if you've been following season two in our Faith and Humanity series, we hope that you have been inspired. From the story of Meredith Kennedy, who helped Refugee Hong hear the sound of freedom for the first time, to Leo Larson, a crewman who rescued a boat of refugees fighting for survival in the midst of a sea storm. But what happens when you lose faith in humanity? Bolinau 52 is a story about 110 Vietnamese refugees who set out to find freedom in 1988, but their fate would take a turn for the worse. They drifted at sea for 37 days, fighting storms, engine failure, hunger, and thirst. And whatever faith that they had left in humanity vanished when a U.S. Navy ship refused to rescue them. After that, the unimaginable happened, and in the end, there were only 52 survivors. I got a chance to chat with documentarian and producer of Bola Now 52, Nuk Nguyen, who won two regional Emmy Awards for this film. I'm also a Vietnamese refugee. My family escaped in 1980, five years after the end of the Vietnam War. Our boat was labeled as a lucky case. We were rescued by a U.S. Navy ship only after four days at sea, while many others fell to a tragic end. And look, I think in a lot of your work, you don't focus too much about yourself. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. I was born in Vietnam, um, in Saigon. And uh, my family doesn't have any tie to the um, military. My dad was just, uh, see, just a, a regular citizen. Um, and my mom just like a homemaker. Um, at the fall of Saigon, we had kind of opportunity to leave the country, but we didn't feel that was, you know, we it were in any kind of danger. Um, so we, we didn't. And we decided to stay. And my family stayed um, in Vietnam for five years after the, the fall of Saigon. My dad um, organized this escape for several of those years. And he ended up being caught. And, you know, we were in prison. My family actually started escape, um, I believe, around 1978. We, we, you know, we encountered a storm. So we had to come back to Vietnam. And then we were captured. And then after the release, we were basically homeless. We didn't have a, you know, our, our house was uh, confiscated. So the only choice was to escape. My dad was um, somehow organized another trip and we were able to um, leave Vietnam in 1980. We spent four days at sea. And how many people were in your family? Um, it was me, uh, my father, my mother, uh, my brother and I. And uh, my sister had already left. Um, on another escape before us. 
and then she already resettled in the United States when we came. So um, yeah, so that's that's my family. But um, our boat, there were over a hundred people on our boat. And how old were you? I was fifteen. Um, we were rescued by the U.S. Navy ship, and basically, um, when you landed on a U.S. Navy ship, you landed on America. So we automatically given asylum status. Yeah. Do you know how often that happens um, with all these boats that people got picked up by U.S. Navy ships? What happened was in 1980, uh, President Carter gave out an executive order for the Southern Fleet to go out and actually seek out more people and rescue them. And I think what happened was in 1984, when he's no longer president, I mean, that executive order is kind of stopped. And then um, when I do interview um, former ship, Navy ship captain, um, they all informed me that um, they got, you know, by the late, later 1980s, they all were ordered to avoid more people. So the rest, the amount, you know, the, the frequencies and the amount of people being rescued by U.S. Navy ship declined at the time. So, um, so we were fortunate, I mean, the timing and everything else. So, um, you know, like right now, like the situation at the border, people have to seek asylum, they go through the process, we will automatically give them asylum. So you were 15 when you came to the United States. Um, how well were you familiar with America or even the English language? Nothing. I mean, you know, we weren't prepared for any of... Vietnam was a third world country. So when, when we came here, we were actually um, was sponsored by a church, by the Lutheran church. And um, the first stop we uh, came to was um, Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., I mean, this area is kind of like outskirt Washington, D.C. And at that time, there were a lot of African-American where we, where we stay. And, um, you know, we, I never saw, well, I saw some like African-American soldiers, but it's just like I said, never saw an African-American kid before. Yeah, it's just a strange, you know, it's just, it's a different word and a strange environment that you kind of kind of thrust into. And um, going to high school, I didn't speak, um, you know, English. I understand English. I didn't understand any, any of that. So um, they put me in the class. And um, the only thing that I remember was just seeing the teacher's lips moving, but didn't understand the words she was saying. You know, I was just sitting there. Soon after, Duke and his family got sponsored by another church community and went to live in a very small town called South Boston, on the border of Virginia and North Carolina, currently home to approximately 8,000 residents. The place where we resettled was a really small town, and there was no other, it's only one other Vietnamese family there who was kind of like help us on you know, various aspects. Uh, but the rest were just mostly white and black Americans. And, and, you know, we don't have any other culture there. So we have to adapt. Dick and his family decided to move to Texas, where he graduated from high school. After school, he wanted to become an illustrator. So he got a trade skills certificate in graphic design. By chance, he moved to California and picked up odd and end jobs in the film industry. His first job in Hollywood was as a set painter. He did that for a while and started to learn about the film industry and fell in love with filmmaking, but not the commercial kind. And 
And I just felt it was so boring to make feature film um, because, you know, you be, you know, doing lines all day long, you know, like so many takes and back and forth. And then you, you know, take a break and you go to the craft table and you eat some food and then you come back and you sit and wait for the lighting. I mean, it's just like, it's just a slow pace kind of like, you know, um, kind of work. It's just a lot of sitting around. Um, you know, I, I love filmmaking. I love the art of filmmaking, but the process, the filmmaking process is sometimes is very grueling. Um, so I decided that um, I want to try, you know, journalism. I just He studied journalism at Santa Monica College and then transferred to U.S. Berkeley and received a bachelor's degree in mass communications. During his studies, he produced a few small films. Bolinow 52 was his first feature documentary released in 2009. We, the Vietnamese boat people, have stories to tell. But some stories are too dark to talk about openly. When these tragedies are mentioned, everyone either stay quiet, stray from the discussions, or make jokes about it. The Bolinao 52 is an account that remains unspoken. I finally had the chance to watch Bolinao 52. This, this film was, I think, one of the first of what is a trilogy of the Vietnamese boat people that you've um, directed and produced. Right. So I'd love to hear the, the making of that movie. Like, how did you even come across that story? So um, while I was at um, Santa Monica College, that's about... 2000. I did some research and um, I went to the library and looked at some microfish, um, you know, of Los Angeles time articles about Vietnamese people. I was looking everywhere, actually. So I, I found these series of articles in the 80s uh, reporting about a local um, U.S. Navy captain. On December 10th, 1988, the L.A. Times ran an article titled Navy to court, Marshal Captain accused of abandoning refugees in disabled boat. The article reads, By the time Captain Alexander Balin and his ship saw the boat of refugees on June 9th in 1988, 27 of the 110 refugees had already died. They had been out at sea for 19 days. According to the description of events in the court martial documents, when the Navy ship had spotted the boat, there were 83 refugees, including children and at least one infant. They gave the refugees food and supplies, but moved on and did not rescue them. The refugees' boat continued to drift for 19 more days. More people died, people were cannibalized, and four were reportedly murdered. There were 52 survivors eventually rescued by a local fisherman in a small town north of the Philippines called Bolanao. Um, so he was court-martialed because of that. And since he was a native um, Los Angeles, they feature his court-martial uh, like headlines for months. And I was reading through that and then I um, see a lot of details that come from testimonies, but there's a lack of details in terms of the survivors. You know, I, mean, they, I think they did a couple articles about the survivors. 
And I just build this curiosity of like, what it was like for those people. I mean, we know what it was like on the ship because they describe, you know, they have all these people that testify and they describe all these details from the ship. You know, what was it like to, to be in a situation where you have to cannibalize your passengers, your fellow passengers. And that was sort of like haunting me for a long time with the question that what would, what would I do if I was in that situation? I found out where the captain lives and I was able to, you know, I tried to contact him, but he didn't respond. But then I found another U.S. Navy captain who rescued Vietnamese, you know, rescue about that time, rescue other boats. But anyway, I interviewed him and he gave me all these details about what it was like to be a captain, you know, when you encounter a boat like that. And then he connected me with one of the U.S. Navy servicemen um, on, on USS Dubuque who wrote to him. And that was Bill Clunan, who's in the film too, who's in the documentary too. I was on the USS Dubuque. We were on our way to the Persian Gulf. I believe it was called Operation Free Will. That's back in about 1988 when the foreign flag tankers were being hit by Iranian missiles and attacked by gunboats and things like that. And I don't remember exactly how many days out of the Philippines that we encountered the Bolanao 52. And I, I'm wondering to myself, man, how did all of these people survive even one day? How did this happen? So Bill wrote it to me, um, and he, you know, I, I contacted Bill, and you know, we uh, communicated, and I uh, met up with him in Hollywood and interviewed him. Um, I think uh, a couple of years passed, I started to look for the survivors, and I wasn't able to find any of them. So I decided I was going to go to Orange County and um, be on one of the radio station, a Vietnamese language radio station, and basically do an interview and ask people to call me if they know who, who were on that boat, you know, or know about that boat. And um, after the interview air, a woman called me right away, and um, she turned out to be, you know, the main character's sister who didn't go on that boat. She came before, but um, she knew about um, the main character and her brother. So the story was that um, Tung and her brother and their sons uh, went together. And then, so what happened was uh, the sister gave me the brother's number um, and asked me to call him. So I called him and he refused, you know, to talk to me um, for about a year, almost a year. And then one, I think one day I was down in Orange County and I called him up and I said, listen, I don't come down here often, but I'm here. So would you please just meet with me? Even though you don't want to tell stories, okay, I just want to meet with you because I will need to tell you the reason why I'm, I'm doing this project. Duke did finally get to meet the man, but he was reluctant to share his story. He said he had a hard time remembering what happened. Whether or not that was true, Duke was not able to get any details from him. He told Duke that he had a younger sister who was on the boat with him, and she might remember more. Duke gave his number to pass along to her, and two weeks later, she called him and said she wanted to talk about her story. 
My father was imprisoned for five years. My brother Sulin was imprisoned for 14 years. He had been a lieutenant colonel in the special forces. Our house was confiscated after the war. When my brother was released from prison, he wanted to escape by boat. So he and I decided to go together. We took our sons with us. The interview, the interview that I did with her telling all the details about the trip, including the cannibalism, was that was the first time I met her. That was, you know, I went there with a cameraman and myself, and my cameraman, um, he doesn't speak a word of Vietnamese, um, and we didn't have a translator or anything. It was just me, him, and her in her living room. And I was able to um, get the recording, and I didn't know how, you know, like my cameraman, how he was able to get, you know, he didn't understand what she said and how he was able to get the emotion or you know, to capture the moment in there. It was really amazing. So, yeah, she was able to tell me everything at that point. But um, for the interview of the U.S. servicemen, um, in Hollywood and her, the, the main subjects interview, both of them I asked the same questions at the end of the interview, and that is, what would you want to do now once it's all said and done? You know, did that all happen 20-some years ago? What would you want to do now? You know, it's one thing that you could do, what would you do? And for the U.S. serviceman, he said, serviceman, he said that he wanted to meet the survivor. You know, at least once a Bible, so he can say, so he can tell them that he's sorry of what happened. It was a terrible day, a very significant event in my life. When we sailed away from that refugee boat, I, I for one, I felt very bad about it because I knew that these people didn't have anything. And for the um, for Dong Jin, the survivor, the main characters, she says she wanted to go back to Bowling out to find those people who rescued her to thank them, you know. And um, and that's how I decided, you know, documentary filmmaking for me is a journey, and you don't even know what turned out. It's, you know, I, I want to capture the story. I want the story to develop um, organically. At that moment, I realized that. Um, that is what we need to do, move forward with the film. Take her to the Philippines, and on the way, we'll meet with U.S. servicemen because he lives in Japan. And it turned out that her son was in the military, he was in uh, the Marines, and he's stationed in Okinawa. He actually, you know, became a U.S. You know, Marine. And then I called Bill. Uh, in in Japan, and I say, listen, you know, you remember what you told me, you know, you told me that you want to meet the survivor, you know, uh, of Bolina 52 survivor. Now's your chance. I'm bringing her to you. You know, we're going to, we, yeah, we're we going to Japan, and we're going to be in Okinawa. So he lives in Osaka. So, and I say, you know, can you fly down and meet with us? You know, this is your, this is your wish. Um, he said, I'm not sure, you know, I'm busy that time, I got these things, and you know, so I put a, you know, like, I just kind of put a guilt trip on him, and I said, listen, you told me 
you know, you told me that's your wish and your wish come true and you're going to back it out on me. I mean, like, how legit are you? You know, that sort of thing. So um, he finally said, okay, you know, I'll come, you know, I'll do it. But Duk did not tell Thong, the survivor, that she would meet one of the servicemen on that U.S. Navy ship that turned them away. He did this intentionally because Dong had already shared that she still holds much resentment to the crew on that ship. Instead, he told her that he was bringing her to the Philippines to find the local fishermen that rescued their boat. And on the way, they would stop in Japan to see her son. So he, you know, he actually part of the film too, because I want to bring him in, because she's talk, constantly talking about her son. Part, you know, a huge part of her story is how she cared for her son. When stranded on a boat that long, hunger is not as debilitating as thirst and dehydration. So when my son Lum was thirsty, I would tell him to stop crying, that he would die if he cried. I didn't want him to further dehydrate himself. I reserved all my water rations for him, and I drank his urine. Um, I, I thought it was a really significant part of, of her character in terms you know, of some mother who brought a son and survived, you know, did everything, keep her, you know, her son from dying. We, we always say, why can't it happen to somebody else? You know? But to someone else, you're someone else. And you could have been that person. And it just happened that we were that, those people that got stuck in that situation. But it could easily happen to someone else. Uh, uh, probably came out a better person because of it. We brought in Bill, and we met in the hotel lobby, right? And again, you know, in, in Japan, I hired this Japanese uh, cinematographer who doesn't speak Vietnamese or fluent English. You know, and I was just like, how is he going to be able to understand what the heck are we talking about? You know, and now he's... And he's just amazing. He was able to not only capture everything, every little moment, every emotion, and also like when we were sleeping, he would go out and what we call it, capture B-rolls, which is kind of scenic, scene, you know, like extra shots, shot that we can use to insert and edit in the film and that sort of thing. And every day I would look at the video and I was like, how did he understand what I want? You know, I didn't even tell him. I didn't even tell him. So that's so incredible how, you know, like um, the synergy and the teamwork. But I didn't really, I didn't feel like I really got what I need, you know, in terms of visual kind of impact or kind of emotional impact that I need. That evening, everybody went out together for dinner. Duk asked them to meet again the next day for another shoot. In the morning when they met, he opened up with a speech. So I started just like no, you know, we can't. So I started kind of start talking, start like making a speech, or just kind of telling everyone, you know, it's like the reason I'm doing this and all that, you know, like I'm just kind of explaining all these details, and then kind of kind of bring them back to that moment, right? One person on the crew would start crying, she would start crying, and he would start crying, you know, and then they would just they would just 
moments like that only happen when the environment or the feelings are right. You know, like there's something you have to like a fire. You have to build it. You have to build it. And there's no acting, right? It's, I mean, it's the raw emotion. Um, I mean, I remember that scene when I saw it, and, and for me, I think it, it it brought closure. Yeah, and then I think it's so crucial because um, they both want to seek that closure. Um, a very key, crucial, what I call a cinematic moment for you know films that you know some films that have it, some moment that define the film. So that was a key moment, you know. You know, there's a lot of awkward moments. Um, when we're in the Philippines, when we were looking for the survivor, uh, the, the rescuers, um, when we met him, she had a hard time believing that he was the, the rescuer. Oh, really? Why is that? Um, because she, did, in her uh, recollection, she, the rescuer was bigger, taller. You know that. You know, like the physical um, embodiment of that rescuer to her didn't match with his physical you know he was skinny and frail and dark and you know and old you know so he she was having problem um trusting that guy or believing that was the guy and that must you know? have been hard to find him was it hard to find him oh that's a story in itself um <laughs> to have to find it uh, and i don't know if you have time for that but that's a story how to find first of all how to find Molly now because um, it's such a small place, I wasn't able to find it on the map anywhere. It was not even on the map, right? So I don't even know where this place is. And I made contact to people who live, who work in the Philippines, in Manila, in the Philippines, and asked them to search for me, and they couldn't even search it. Even Filipinos, even, you know, Filipinos, they don't even know where this place is. It's just basically the end of the road. You know, it's just like if you take this road and you drive on the end of the road, that's the little coastal town. That's where it was. The film took Duk almost 10 years from the time that he discovered that news article to filming, fundraising, to it actually getting released on PBS. Duk Nguyen has received numerous awards for his work that covers subjects of home, immigration, war, social justice, history, and reconciliation. Currently, he is working on a multimedia digital history project called Voice from Oblivion. He also runs a digital company called Right Here in My Pocket. To get the full story on Bolinow 52, you can search and on-demand the documentary on Vimeo. I encourage you to watch it with a tissue box, but I promise you that despite the dark story, you'll still walk away with restored faith in humanity. This episode concludes our season two. If you want to explore more of Duke's work and connect with him, visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Vietnamese Boat People Podcast and look for details under episode 12. And a special shout out to our associate producer, Trisha Vung, for helping to curate this episode. I'm Tracy Nguyen Mang, and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like these stories, please rate us and share your feedback. 
And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org. Thank you.